during the latter half of the tribulation. And uh, chapter 11 reveals uh, that a, a few things. It reveals, one, that the Jewish people uh, are uh, going to rebuild their temple. They are going to reinstate the animal sacrificial system. This was prophesied under Daniel. And uh, this will happen because the Bible tells us that the Antichrist will usher in this false covenant of peace, and uh, he will allow the Jews to rebuild their temple, and there will come a time, apparently, according to Scripture prophetically, where the Temple Mount will be divided, and so that even though presently, if you go to Jerusalem, there are only two uh, Muslim buildings, one is a mosque and one is a shrine, uh, the Dome of the Rock is a shrine in the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, located there on the Temple Mount. Presently, only a Muslim presence on the Temple Mount. Not since 70 A.D. have the Jews had a temple there, but the Bible prophesies that a temple will be rebuilt. And um, chapter 11 indicates that the temple is standing when we read this. So therefore, we know it, it will be re rebuilt. And um, this is a temple that will be rebuilt under, again, the leadership of the Antichrist. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But this 11th chapter also reminds us that in spite of what we're going to see happening here through this chapter, that God is still in control, always has been, always shall be, and that kingdoms are under His direction. So we'll see that as we get into it further. Now, uh, this has been somewhat of a parenthetical passage here from chapter 10, verse 1, all the way through chapter 11, verse 14. We are given insight as to some things that are happening on the earth, but uh, this is between trumpet number six and trumpet number seven. We've been in a series of seven seals that have been unsealed, and now we've been in a series of seven trumpets that have been sounded, and with each successive trumpet, there is a new introduction of some aspect of God's wrath being poured out upon the world because they are Christ-rejecting, God-forsaking. And uh, when we get here to chapter 11, finally at verse 15, the seventh and the last of the trumpets is sounded, and we'll talk about what that means. But first, here in chapter 11, the first 14 verses have to do with two witnesses that God dispatches upon the earth in the first half of the tribulation period. So during the first three and a half years, God assigns two witnesses, and we'll try to figure out who they might be, to basically go throughout the region of Jerusalem and give a word of uh, repentance. It's a strong word. Uh, some see this as a word of uh, exhortation. Some see it as a word of salvation, and I kind of see it as a little bit of both. People are going to get saved because of their preaching, because of their prophetic gift that they are given. They're noted here as uh, two prophets, and, and, um, and yet what they have to say is, um, well, when we get to it, you'll see actually it's described as tormenting because truth to people who don't want to hear truth, it can be very tormenting. And, and so that's what this 11th chapter is about. Let's, let's uh, dive in together here, starting at verse 1. We'll read a, a few verses, and then we'll back up and, and try to see what's happening here in relation to these two witnesses. But verse 1 says, John writing here, he says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, so somewhat like a yardstick, we would say, and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. 
They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So first, let's uh, uh, start at verse 1. He, uh, John is told to go measure the temple and the altar and count the worshipers. So he's given this assignment. Now, he is in heaven, and uh, he's receiving these various revelations, but in this prophetic vision, he is told to go measure something that shall be. Now, it's presently not there. By the time that John writes this, when he's banished to the island of Patmos sometime in the 90s A.D., the temple in Jerusalem is not there. So this has to be a temple that is yet to come. And the temple, since the Romans destroyed it under Titus Vespasian in 70 A.D., has never been rebuilt. The Jews have had three temples so far. The first temple was built under King Solomon. The specifications, the architecture, the design was given by God to David, Solomon's father. David was not allowed to build the temple of God because God said, your hands have shed blood. He was a warrior. And so his son Solomon had the privilege when he became king after his father David died of building the temple. That was the first temple that was built. Now before that, there was this mobile kind of a sanctuary called the tabernacle, and those plans were given to Moses. But until Solomon's day, the Jews had never had a permanent sanctuary, a permanent house of worship. And so Solomon builds this on the Temple Mount there in Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, and that's the first temple. That gets destroyed when the Babylonians besiege Jerusalem around 586 B.C. And then the Jews are carried off into captivity. They're banished to uh, Babylon for 70 years. When they come back, under their, they, they have three different returns, and uh, Nehemiah begins the rebuilding of the walls, and then you have uh, Ezra is involved in that time, Zerubbabel is involved during that time, and they rebuild the temple of God. That's the second temple. And then the, the third temple... Uh, is Herod's temple. And the third temple was not so much rebuilt as it was kind of refurbished. Uh, Herod wanted to ingratiate himself with the Jews. He was the appointed leader by the Romans of that particular province of the, of the Roman Empire. And so Herod, wanting to ingratiate himself with the Jews, said, tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refurbish. I'm, it's, we're going to have an extreme makeover, bring, drive the bus, the whole deal, and, then, and we're going to rebuild the, the temple of your God. And so he does, and it's very elaborate. And so in Jesus' day, the temple that he enters there, that old temple court, that temple grounds area, is the temple that Herod had built or, or rebuilt. So those were the three temples. Now, that one was destroyed in 70 A.D. There will be a fourth temple. The fourth temple will be the one that is rebuilt under the leadership of Antichrist. And if you look at an aerial view of the Temple Mount area as it stands today, it is possible for there to still be room without disturbing the Dome of the Rock or without disturbing the Al-Aqsa Mosque and, and to build the temple that the Jews will then worship in once again and they will reinstate the Old Testament sacrificial system, and the temple can still be built where it is on the Temple Mount area, and it's directly facing east, the, the eastern gate, also known as the Golden Gate. Now, um, it seems 
completely incongruous for there to be a temple of God um, right next to the Dome of the Rock and the Al Aqsa Mosque, and that's because um, it is incongruous. And the Antichrist will subdivide the Temple Mount area, and he's going to, you know, it seems bizarre to us now how are Jews and Muslims going to worship on the same area, on the same ground, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it's not a far-fetched idea. Some of you may remember that under President Bill Clinton that he proposed dividing up the Temple Mount. And uh, Yasser Arafat and Ehud Barak, who Ehud Barak was the current prime minister of Israel at the time, and Barak was in agreement with it. It was Yasser Arafat who said, no, I don't want to have anything to do with worshiping next to the Jews. And so it was killed. But, but that, that has been on the table before. This is not a far-fetched idea. All it's going to take eventually is for enough people to finally want peace that they'll buy into this and they will accept the Antichrist's uh, covenant of peace. And so for the first three and a half years, uh, they will think all is well. But now listen, God is not pleased with this temple. This is not a temple that God has designed. This is not a temple that God has asked to be built. This is a temple under the false pretext of peace. Antichrist is going to reveal himself halfway into the tribulation period. But it will be rebuilt. There are zealous Zionist Jews right now who are, have already redesigned remade all the articles of the temple. And when we go to Jerusalem, we're going to be there in about a month, those of you who are going with me, uh, we will stop by the Temple Institute right in downtown Jerusalem in the old city, and uh, I will show you all that they have already made, and they've made it to specification according to Scripture. Now, um, they fudged a little bit on the menorah. The menorah was made out of solid gold, and what they found when they tried to refashion this thing out of solid gold was that the weight of it being pure gold, pure gold is very soft. And uh, so the branches of the menorah started to bend, and so they actually then put uh, steel on the inside of it, and then they coated it with gold. So not everything to true specifications, but um, somehow when God actually had it designed, uh, he miraculously was able to hold all things together as he does. And so the golden menorah under uh, the Lord's prescription was fine. But anyhow, we'll go there and we'll see. And they are looking forward to the new temple that's going to be built. For them, it's exciting. As Christians, when we go to the Temple Institute, it's very sad because we know that what's going to happen is the temple's going to be rebuilt. They're going to bring all those articles in, into the new temple, and they're going to think, this is, this is the new deal, and this is the great thing. And, that, and if you ask any, any Jew who's not a believer in Yeshua, who's not a believer in Jesus, in Israel today, what is the one indication, how would you recognize Messiah? To a person, the answer is, Messiah will allow us to rebuild the temple. To a person, they will say that. That's how they are going to recognize Messiah. And that is exactly what Antichrist is going to allow to happen. And so for the first three and a half years, the Jews are going to think, this is great, this is Messiah, and this is our opportunity to worship God once again. And they're going to be hauling the animals and the lambs back to the Temple Mount. I don't know what PETA is going to do. They're going to have a conniption fit. But, uh, but it's, it's going to happen again. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. And so that's what we see here. And John is told, measure the temple and the altar and count the worshipers there. Now, when he says count the worshipers, what God is saying is, notice, there's not going to be any real true worshipers of Jesus there. It's going to be the Muslims worshiping on the Temple Mount. It's going to be Jews who are worshiping, yes, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but not Jesus because Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. He was the Lamb who was slain. When they are reinstituting the temple sacrifices, 
it is in effect saying the sacrifice of Jesus was not sufficient for us and we don't believe it. And so thus there will not be any true worshipers of the Lord Jesus on the Temple Mount. And so verse 2, he says, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. And that's true. Even today, Muslims control the Temple Mount area with the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now, that's three and a half years. And what he's speaking there is of the last three and a half years of the seven years of tribulation, the Gentiles will be trampling on uh, particularly the holy city for those 42 months. In contrast to verse 3, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, 1,260 days. If you use a Babylonian calendar, and I think that's what John is doing here, a Babylonian calendar is different from our Gregorian calendar that we're under right now. Our Gregorian calendar counts for 365 days, point whatever, because it also assumes a leap year. 365 days. The Babylonian calendar was 360 days. So 1,260 days divided by 360 is exactly three and a half years. Now, why would John be using a Babylonian calendar? Because he's linking the prophecies of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel prophesied during the days of the Babylonian empire. So when Daniel was writing in terms of times, he was in terms of dates and chronology, he was using a Babylonian calendar. To sync with that prophecy, John is keeping in step with that to give us a chronology of events. And what it tells us here is that these two witnesses will be prophesying in the first three and a half years. So you're going to have these two witnesses show up on the world scene. And uh, for you note takers, here's a couple of bits of information in regards to the two witnesses. Their location is going to be Jerusalem because it tells us in verse 1 that it's where the temple is located. And later down in verse 8, we're going to see specifically that it says that it's where their Lord was crucified. So we know it's Jerusalem. They're going to show up. That's their location. Their commission here is to preach a message of repentance. That's why verse 3 talks about prophesying, and it says that they're going to be clothed in sackcloth because sackcloth was a garment of mourning. So it's going to be a, 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 a message of, of grief over the sins of the people. God is brokenhearted. He's going to send these prophets, and they're going to preach a message of repentance. They're going to go around the streets of Jerusalem preaching repentance. And it tells us that the length of their ministry, their duration, is these 1,260 uh, 1, days or three and a half years, again, using the calendar of the Babylonians, which corresponded to Daniel chapter 9 in relation to his prophecy about Antichrist. And so that's why it's all linked there together. Now, um, it says uh, further down in verse 4, that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men, that is the two witnesses, have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, uh, when, when you consider here what it says uh, in verse 5, this is pretty awesome, that their protection is that fire comes from their mouths if anyone tries to harm them. Wouldn't you love to have that one? I mean, I, I, mean, I know God knows that he can entrust it to these two, because I'm thinking, wow, 
Can you imagine? You know how you go to a restaurant sometimes, and you know, and they give you that little buzzer, and they say it's going to be half an hour. It's going to be half an hour. Yeah, it's going to be half an hour. And then you know, half an hour turns into 45 minutes, and your buzzer still hasn't gone off. Wouldn't it be great just to be like, you know, you told me it was going to be half an hour. Well, I'm sorry. It's going to be another half an hour. Well, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, wouldn't that be just awesome? Well, maybe I'm just in the flesh at that thought. Or traffic. Somebody cuts you off, just roll down the window. Torch them. Wouldn't that be awesome? But of course, you know, God knows, don't give this to Hamrick, because that would be a terrible thing. But he's, he's entrusting it to the two witnesses, and, you know, honestly, it's more of a defensive weapon than anything else. If anybody tries to harm them, they're like fire-breathing dragons. They are just going to toast somebody. They're going to smoke anybody who comes near them, fire coming out of their mouths. This is, I got a word for it, awesome. But, but you know, and so that's how they're protected. Now, who are they? Who are these two witnesses? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you three schools of thought, all right? The first one is that some believe that these two witnesses are Joshua and Zerubbabel. Joshua, uh, not the one of the book of Joshua, but Joshua during the days of the rebuilding of the temple of God after the Babylonian captivity, Joshua was the priest and Zerubbabel was the civil leader. Now, the reason why some people believe that is because of this stuff in verse 4 when it talks about these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And some will go to Zechariah chapter 4, and I'll just read some of it to you, where it speaks about lampstand and um, olive trees. And here's what Zechariah 4 says. Then the angel who talked with me returned and wakened me as a man is wakened from his sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it. This is a menorah, a seven-branched candelabra, with seven channels to the lights. And then there was a bowl above it. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Let me jump ahead to verse 11. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold, gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said to me, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. And the two, in the context of Zechariah's prophecy here, are Joshua and Zerubbabel. So you have the language very similar. Talks about a golden lampstand, talks about two olive trees, one on each side. There's a slight variation in Revelation because here in Revelation it says two olive trees and two lampstands. Zechariah says one lampstand, so it's not identical. But the picture is that the lampstand, the menorah, each of the, of the seven branches of this candelabra was hollow so that it could be filled with olive oil. Then there was a wick coming out of each branch, and then the wick would be lit, but it, the fuel was olive oil. The olive trees on each side of the menorah symbolized that the oil that was necessary to light the lamp came from these two olive trees. And in Zechariah's prophecy, he says, well, that's Joshua and that's Zerubbabel. These are two men that God is using to bring God's illumination to the people of Israel. They are God's chosen servants for the hour. And so some will say, well, here in Revelation, it must be that then Joshua and Zerubbabel come back to life. God sends them as these witnesses 
to be God's illumination in a dark world at this particular time too. So that's one school of thought, and that it's, it's plausible. I don't personally agree with that, but you can if you want. Then there's another school of thought, and that is that these two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah. And the reason why some say that is because when you look in the Old Testament, Enoch and Elijah are the only ones who did not experience death, that God took Enoch home because he was righteous and he walked with God, and then God took him. We don't know what that was, but all of a sudden Enoch was in heaven and transformed in some way on the way up. And Elijah similarly went up to heaven in a chariot of fire. So they're really the only two who did not experience a physical death as, as we would describe or define physical death, and that's why some will think that. Um, I, and, you know, that's, that's plausible too. I think one is right in that scenario. I think one is Elijah here. Because when you look at the description of these two in terms of some of their powers and their abilities, um, it tells us that in verse 6, um, these men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. Well, who is that? That's Elijah. I mean, if you want a complete comparison, um, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings that Elijah prayed that it would not rain over Israel, and it did not rain because the withholding of rain, drought, was interpreted in those days as a signal of God's judgment. And so it is true that the same thing is going to happen during these three and a half years, the first three and a half years of the tribulation, as these two witnesses are going forth and they're preaching this message of repentance, they're going to pray and it doesn't rain for the entire three and a half years. It's going to be a sign of God's judgment again. So that's very similar to Elijah. Also, James 5.17 tells us in the New Testament that same thing, that Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and a half years, and then he prayed again, and it rained. So very similar. I think that it's probably Elijah, as also when it speaks about fire coming forth from them to consume their enemies, um, Elijah was also a man who was surrounded by a bit of fire. Because in 2 Kings chapter 1, there's a story, not that it came from his mouth, but it comes down from heaven. There's a story in 2 Kings 1 when Elijah, the prophet, is um, sitting on a hillside and the king of Israel summons Elijah. And he sends a captain and 50 men to go get Elijah and to bring him to the king. And so the captain and his 50 soldiers go to Elijah. They see him sitting on a hillside and they say, hey, Elijah, the king wants to see you. You're a man of God, right? Well, the king wants to see you. Elijah says, well, if I'm really a man of God, may God rain down fire and consume you. Because he didn't want to go. And God smoked all 50, 51 of them. And, all the, and, they, and they die right there. And so a word gets back to the king. Hey, the guys ended up like bacon. Well, that's not kosher. The guys ended up like, you know, charcoal steak. And so um, we need to send another group. And so the king, you know, it's kind of hard to learn a lesson, I guess. He sends another 50 guys to the captain. says, Elijah, if you're a man of God, King of Israel wants to see you. Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, may fire come down and consume you. And again, now you'd think, you'd think that the king would go, oh, I'm losing my guys here. But no, he sends another group of 50. But this time, the captain of that 50 knows enough. He has enough sense that he approaches Elijah with a bit of humility. He says, listen, Elijah, you are a man of God. Please don't smoke me. I've got a family. I really enjoy my job. Everything's going well in life. Could you just please come to the king? And then the Lord says to Elijah, go with this guy. So there's a humble approach there. But you see fire around Elijah's ministry. You see fire here. You see that he prayed and it did not 
reign for those three and a half years. They both did. And then it also says in the rest of verse 6, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Well, who does that sound like? Moses. The first plague upon Israel was when Moses' staff was placed into the Nile River, and then the Nile turned to blood, and then there was also a series of nine other plagues that followed that. So very similar description. Um, this is the third school of thought. This is the one that I uh, believe to be the case, that it's probably, these two witnesses are probably, Elijah and Moses. We don't know for sure, so I can't be definitive about it, but, and the Bible doesn't give us their names. But just on the indications of, of what I've mentioned there, it seems to suggest that. Now, there's another a matter that would make these two guys linked together. Remember what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. God take, uh, Jesus takes up Peter, James, and John to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there, when Jesus is transfigured before them, appears with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. The law and the prophets always testified of Jesus. All of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, testify of Jesus. Elijah is the representation of the, of the prophets. Moses is the representation of the law. And what better scenario than those two who represent the prophets and the law representing Jesus as they testify of him and as they preach this message of repentance. So don't know for sure, but that's likely their identification. Now, it says in verse 7 that when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street on the great, of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So we know that it is Jerusalem because that's the statement that clarifies it. Sodom, a city of sin, Egypt, a place of idolatry and paganism. So at this time, apparently Jerusalem is going to be just steeped in all kinds of sin and idolatry. And then verse 9 says, for three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. So here's what happens. They get assassinated. Their assassination is by the beast that is the Antichrist. We've already looked in previous chapters which speak about the beast that comes up from the abyss. That is the Antichrist. And, um, and he will attack them, overpower them, and kill them. Now, their, their, their ministry is done. God's assignment is completed because it says in verse 7, now when they had finished their testimony. But God's going to allow this to happen because of something spectacular that is going to follow. So he allows, he permits Antichrist to assassinate these two. And then it tells us that there's going to be a celebration concerning these two guys. That their bodies will lie in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days while people celebrate their death. That's what verses 8 through 10 tell us. And why it is three and a half days, I don't have an answer for you. But it tells us that people from Every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Now, how can it be that people from every tribe, every language, every nation gaze upon their dead bodies if not for the fact that we live now in a technological age where that would be possible? 
Now there's satellites and CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and whatever other network is going to carry this and it's going to be seen by everybody around the world. That's the only way that this could happen, where everybody is going to be able to watch these guys over the course of three and a half days. It's just going to be, get a lot of news coverage. And it says here that they are going to be celebrating the death of these two guys by, notice verse 10, by sending each other gifts. It's going to be a new holiday on the calendar, Dead Prophets Day. And they're, going to, and they're going to be turning on the news. They're going to be like, honey, let's see if those guys are, let's look at their dead bodies again. And people are going to be gazing on them, exchanging gifts. Isn't this crazy now? Because, you know, now our culture wants to eliminate any reference to Christmas. So we're going to take that off the calendar, but we're going to put Dead Prophets Day on the calendar. And they're going to exchange gifts, going to have, you know, their own little special wrapping paper. I don't know what it's going to look like. But they're going to be, you know, doing all this, and it's, going to, it's, it's nuts. And, and it says, because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. Now, I referenced that earlier. What it means is they've tormented them by, by telling the truth. If you're living in sin and you don't want to have anything to do with God, last thing you want is for somebody to tell you about God and that you're living in sin. And, um, and so because of that, it's this tormenting thing where they're hearing the truth. They don't want to hear the truth. Oh, these guys have been killed. Good for them. Good for us. Let's watch for three and a half days as they gaze upon the news and the media that's covering this, this event. But, verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. I bet it did. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're like, honey, let's go see if these guys are still dead. You know, watch them on the news, and then all of a sudden, whoa, you know, everybody's like, yeah, ding dong, the prophets are dead, the prophets are dead. You know, and then all of a sudden, these guys stand up and come to life, and people are going to be struck with terror. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Another word for awesome. I mean, how amazing that will be. So again, for you note takers, well, the resurrection and the ascension of these guys happens. They will come to life by the breath of God and they will ascend to heaven. And they will hear that voice come up here. Now, that, uh, that um, you can underline come up here. It's very similar. It's exactly the words in chapter 4, verse 1. When the Lord said to John, come up here, it's symbolic of the rapture of the church. You put these things together, and that whole going up to heaven thing is similar in chapter 4 as it is here in chapter 11, where these two prophets are raised to life by the breath of God, and then they are snatched up from the earth and pulled back up to heaven while their enemies looked on. What uh, an awesome event that must be. Verse 13, at that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. So that's why I say that people will be saved as a result of their preaching, their prophesying, because it says here that uh, many of the survivors became believers in the Lord Jesus, giving glory to the God of heaven. So you're not going to give glory to God unless you are believing in Him and you have um, then surrendered your life to Him. So there is a benefit of their ministry. They warn those who are rejecting God and they offer repentance and salvation to those who want to believe. So that's the end of the parenthetical part, um, this inserted section of Scripture here to let us know what's going on between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. But then when we get to verse 14, it says, the second woe has passed, the third woe is coming. 
That refers back to chapter 8, where the last three woes were issued in relation to the last three trumpets, trumpets 5, 6, and 7. Well, trumpets 5 and 6 have already happened. The third woe is coming soon. So now this is trumpet 7, and here we go in verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That's what Daniel prophesied. I'll read it real quickly. Daniel 2, verse 44. In the time of those kings, speaking of uh, the end times leading up to the messianic kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. And Daniel prophesied about how this this uh, conglomeration of nations will come together into this ten-nation confederation. Daniel tells us then Antichrist will emerge from within that ten-nation confederation, and then those nations will defer to Antichrist to be the world leader, but then the Lord Jesus will come and he will destroy Antichrist. He will, he will destroy all those nations that are opposed to him, and he will set himself up on the earth for a thousand-year reign and that's what is being spoken of here through this seventh trumpet, that the kingdom of our Lord will never pass away, that he will reign forever and ever. So the seventh trumpet is uh, letting us know, it is an announcement that God is going to take over the earth as judge and king. Now, there's still a series of, of uh, wrath that's going to be poured out upon the earth, but it is letting everybody know in advance that God is king and he is um, going to be coming and establishing his kingdom, and he will reign forever and ever. And it says in verse 16, And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So these 24 elders we've identified before, they represent the raptured church. John now revisits all this vision happening in heaven. He sees the 24 elders who represent the church. And they are on their faces worshiping God. And this is the third time that Revelation says that they did such a thing. Back in chapter 4, the 24 elders fall down to worship the Lord and they praise God as creator. In chapter 5, they fall on their faces and they worship God. They praise Him as redeemer. And here in chapter 11, they're falling on their faces and they're worshiping God as judge and king over all the earth. And they are praising Him and worshiping Him. Uh, it says in verse 18, the time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, those who reverence your name. Now, it doesn't tell us there, but when you look further through Scripture, especially in Revelation 20, we can come to learn that the punishment of the wicked and the rewarding of the saints is separated by a thousand years. At the beginning of the millennial period, when Jesus comes again to the earth, he will reward the saints. But the dead are not, they don't get their final punishment until the end of the thousand-year reign when all those who have died opposed to Christ previous and during that thousand years, then they will be punished. And uh, so it's separated by a thousand years, though it doesn't 
read like that, but, but that is the case. And the end of verse 18 says and that God's going to destroy those who destroy the earth. That doesn't mean if you don't recycle, you're going to get destroyed. Um, if you don't protect the environment, you're destroying the earth. He's, he's speaking here of destroying the earth by virtue of their sin, that they have completely uh, defaced and, um, and um, destroyed the earth by virtue of sin that has... Uh, sin has destroyed the earth. Sin has destroyed the world. And then closing out this chapter, verse 19 says, Then God's temple in heaven... Now, this is interesting. There is a temple in heaven. God's temple in heaven. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5 tells us that the temple on earth that was built by Solomon was a shadow of a representation of the temple of God that is in heaven. So even when you read the articles of the temple and the design of the temple that God gave through David to Solomon, the Bible tells us, again, Hebrews 8, 5, that those things are a shadow of what is actually in heaven. So there is a temple in heaven. And God is seated on his throne. And it says here that then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and great hailstorm. Now he sees here the ark of the covenant. Well, the ark of the covenant. I mean, you know, I thought, yeah, if you ever watched Indiana Jones, it was in a warehouse in Washington, D.C. What in the world is it doing in heaven? Well, it's in, it's in heaven because that's the real Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant was called the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was located in the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the Temple of Solomon. And the high priest could only go into that Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, for the sins of the people. And he would go under the old covenant, sprinkling the mercy seat with the blood of the lamb to atone for the sins of the people. Now, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the lid, there were golden cherubim, two facing each other, heads down, wings stretched out, meeting in the middle. The Bible says in Psalm 99, verse 1, that God sits enthroned between the cherubim. When a high priest went behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God was manifest there on the mercy seat. That's how he presented himself in the Shekinah glory of God. It is again a shadow of what is actually in heaven. So what this translates to is that the actual temple in heaven, the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, is the throne of God. Because again, the Bible says that God sits enthroned between the cherubim. So what John is seeing here is the throne of God. But why doesn't he just simply say throne of God instead of Ark of the Covenant? Here's why. Because in this closing passage here, God is seen here as judge and king. But he wants to be known as the one who offers mercy to all who believe and receive. He sees, John does, the Ark of the Covenant, which is the mercy seat, which instead of saying it as a throne, is an indication to us that though, yes, God sits on a throne, in fact, he wants it to be known that as judge and king, he sits upon the mercy seat because he is merciful to all who would believe and receive. And he's that way for you and me as well. That God is a merciful God. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed. 
And if the enemy, if Satan is lying to you, saying to you that you could never be saved or you could never be forgiven or God doesn't love you because of what you've done, please understand this. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That the truth is that God so loved the world, He loved you, that He gave His Son Jesus to die for you. That is the demonstration of His mercy. And He wants to give us life in His name and the forgiveness of sins if we would just call upon the mercy of the Lord and ask Him to forgive us. He will do that. Yes, He is judge. Yes, He is king. But He is a merciful God to all who believe and receive. We'll end there. Would you pray with me? Lord, I don't know who knows you in a personal way here tonight and who doesn't, but you do. And I ask, Lord, that if there's even one here tonight that doesn't, who doesn't know you in a personal way, that they would approach the throne of grace and receive mercy from a loving Father. God, I would ask right now that you would bear witness to their hearts how much you love them, how much you're a merciful God, how much you want to forgive them if they would simply ask and receive. The price that you paid on the cross covers every and any sin. That they might be saved tonight. That they would humble themselves and ask you, Jesus, to come into their lives, to forgive them of sin, to be Lord and Savior. Father, I ask you right now to move in the heart of whoever needs you as a merciful Father tonight. Your head still bowed and your eyes closed. Do you know him as a merciful Father tonight? Have you received Jesus as Lord and Savior? Why not tonight? Why not pray and ask Him to come into your heart to be your Lord and Savior, to save you, to call upon the Lord, and you shall be saved. Here's how you do it. You pray a prayer, you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, and you ask Him to take over your life as Lord and Savior. He is a loving Savior who demonstrated His love by dying on the cross for you and me. If you're willing to receive Him and accept Him tonight as your Lord and Savior, then all you need to do is pray a prayer. How do I pray that? I'll lead you in this prayer right now. And as I lead you, you can just repeat this prayer after me as you would whisper it and pray it to the Lord yourself. Just pray it after me. Just pray it to the Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. I'm amazed by your love. Thank you that you're merciful, loving, and forgiving. I ask you to forgive me of my sins, Lord, to cleanse my heart and to come into my life to be my Lord and Savior. I yield my life to you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen.